Hey everybody, I'm so excited to share this episode with you. I might be dancing in my podcast chair right now because this conversation with Romy Alexandra was one of those moments where the notes document went out the window and we simply explored together. It was like we had a collective curiosity jam session. Romy has a career history beyond compare, from her impactful client and project list to her many languages spoken and countries lived and worked in, her certification and credential list. Y'all, if I read it, we wouldn't even have time for the episode. You get the point. She knows her stuff and she cares deeply about her clients and work and she uses all of her talents to do impactful international learning experience design and facilitation work. And she shares all that she has and continues to learn through learning experiences and coaching support of her own to help other L&D professionals thrive. In this episode, we skipped over some information that may or may not be foundational to our listeners. So if you don't already know what experiential learning is, like as a, as a proper noun, um, and you want to know, you may enjoy some of the resources I linked in the episode description. Otherwise, just know we jumped right into the deep end, uh, into a lot of the duality of learning and development work. Okay, without further ado, here's my conversation with Romy Alexandra. All right, welcome to the Building Thinkers podcast. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Romy Alexandra. She is an incredible learning experience designer and consultant, facilitator, trainer, coach, (laughs) internationally has done so many incredible things. Uh, When I read her list of certifications, it is remarkable. And the country she's lived in, the languages that she knows, I could go on and on. But rather than do that, we're just going to dive in and hear directly from Romy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tracy. Just hearing you say that makes me laugh, right? How many different hats and different, uh, different hats I wear in my work. It's, it's exciting and also funny to hear you say that. So thanks so much. Thrilled to be here and just chat with you today. Okay, Romy, let's start here. Okay, so it's the Building Thinkers podcast. We love to think about what are the things that you build, maybe just a little bit of what brought you to this work. Um, You can go whatever direction you want to get there, and then we'll explore further together some of these ideas. Totally. Well, I have to start by saying I never in a million years would have imagined when I was younger that I was going to be a builder, right? I consider myself a designer, an experienced designer, so I'm constantly building learning experiences, whether that is through courses and cohort-based courses, or if that's in more workshops, webinars, trainings, conferences, you name it. Um, And so for me, it's so interesting because I would have never have imagined myself as this designer and this builder, but now it is such an important essence of everything that I do. And I love Mm -hmm. to build these kind of learning experiences that really can be transformative not just in terms of engagement, which is a key part of it, engagement, connection, but also really in terms of impact, because, you know, that's why we're here to learn is also to grow and, you know, do something valuable in our lives. Love it. And I think we got connected through Anna Maria Dorgo in LMD Shakers, and she was spot on when she paired us up to have a chat, because um, I just remember from that first conversation feeling 
um, just in, in my place with my fellow learning nerds and just all the incredible um, work and experiences that you've had, one of the things that I've been thinking about and just reflecting in preparation for this conversation is thinking about the idea of an experience. And if people wanna go into more depth about experiential learning, of which Romy is an absolute expert, there's many podcasts where she's shared all uh, the four modes and on the cycle and all of that stuff. And we encourage you to dive in. We'll put those in the episode description. But one thing that you often mention is this definition of an experience as anything new that strikes the learner and, and not, no pun intended, but I'm struck by the word strikes that, that strikes the learner. And I would love to hear you just riff on that and what you have found to be true that we can think about, you know, many of our listeners are in the L&D space or in leadership positions in which they have to think about the ways they are interacting with others and um, advocating for ideas and shifting mindsets and all the things we do in the modern world of work that includes humans working together. So is there anything that stands out to you about that definition, why you hold that so closely and is such a central part, it seems, to the work that you do? Yeah, thank you so much for starting there. So um, I'm now a faculty member at the Institute for Experiential Learning, and my one of my core mentors, David Kolb, is the creator of uh, experiential learning theory. And he really created that definition of an experience as something new that strikes the learner. He really emphasized the striking. And um, that's also based on, you know, many of the thought leaders that have informed experiential learning theory. Um, you know, John Dewey, there's so many different theorists behind that. And for me, why I love it is because when you think about something that strikes me, it could be totally different than what strikes you, right? And so that for me is one of the biggest values of experiential learning is we all could have the same experience, but we will have such different takeaways. What I might find totally new or fascinating or interesting, or I might be more curious about, you might say, no, for me, it was something totally different. And that I think is the beauty of also harnessing diversity within individuals and understanding also, you know, empowering them to tap into their own curiosity. That's striking for me. Um, also another facilitator who has been a mentor of mine, Chad Littlefield, he also, it's funny because he always used to say one of his favorite reflection questions was what struck you, right? After you have an experience, what struck you? And he, he liked to, uh, to use that question as well, because he'd say people who are more maybe analytical might focus more on the knowledge, the facts, the takeaways of what just happened. And people who might be a bit more inclined towards the emotional aspect might focus on the feelings that struck them, the emotions, what it evoked for them. And that's really why I think uh, when I look at the experience part, it's about striking, it's about new novelty, but it's also about tapping into your senses and having this like multi-sensory experience that will help you later, you know, you can transform those experiences through the debriefs and help you see life in a new way. Mm, I love that. So as I'm thinking about some of those things that you just pulled out, so some of the ways that you just described that learners may be struck might be through novelty. So something maybe that either made them think in a new way or the experience itself was new and novel. Um, this idea of the senses being tapped into and that bringing in, you know, we're not just these, uh, what's the saying? Like we're not just brains on a stick. <laughs> Um, but you know, where our whole 
body. And I think that this is something that has evolved in my own practice of facilitation is um, I can be very much in my head. I love the research. I love the academic side. I love I love my design, quite frankly, and I do get rather connected to my design and I have to hold that often with open hands. And uh, one of the things that I've heard you say is this idea that you love to live. Um, you said, I live by the rules of open space. And I would love for a moment here to unpack what does that mean to you, Romy, and how have you seen that? Maybe let's start with how have you seen that to be true? And then I'd love to flip it and say, where have you seen that to be either a challenge or maybe even not true? We're going to like sneak in our own little thought experiment here as we go. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. So many things. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I could go back to the beautiful things you just said, but I'll answer your question. Yeah. I think for me, that connection right between the experience and then the open space is it's all, it's all connected. I just want to say one thing to go back before we talk about open space is that what I love about learning experience design, what I love about really going deep into building these, these experiences is that this is the way we live our life, right? We live through experience. We learn through experience. It's actually the natural process that happens in our life. So it doesn't have to be always something that I'm building for a client, a course, an experience, right? It's any life experience. I go outside of my door, something happens, I'm going to, you know, I can make a huge failure in life and it can be a huge mistake, but hey, I learned from that experience. That experience I can then, if I really want to use it as a tool for growth, I don't just sit there and self-shame and say, Romy, you're such an idiot. How could you do that? Which let's be honest, we all need to empower ourselves with a bit more self-compassion, but I'm saying, no, this was a, a failure mistake that I can reflect upon. I'm going to learn about it. What, you know, what was it that failed? What do I want to do differently in the future? And then I go out and do that. And just even that is experiential learning cycle, right? That's how you take an experience and transform it. And I think taking that bigger approach, a meta approach to how we look at experiences is also the same way I do with open space. And I think for me, you know, anyone who's not familiar, open space is, is one methodology that you can use. It's one of my favorites. Um, but it's very much more about empowering participants to create their own agenda. So there's an open space and participants come in and say, you know, today I'd like to actually suggest we do some cooking or actually we talk about strategic design or who knows what. It could be anything in the middle to really um, create, co-create this agenda together. And some of the rules, uh, there's only four, four, uh, four rules and a law and they happen to be, you know, whatever happens is the only thing that could have or whoever comes are the right people Whenever it starts is the only time it could have. When it, whenever it's over, it's over. It's, it's, uh, for me, it's such a part of my own facilitation practice, but also in life. I do believe how we facilitate is how, how we live is how we lead. How we facilitate is how we lead, right? They're also intertwined and connected. And you asked me this interesting question, like when and how am I using those principles in my life? So I can tell you, Right now, today was one of those moments where I was really channeling whatever happens is the only thing that could have. So I am supposed to be uh, getting on a flight to a particular country <laughs> uh, on uh, in tomorrow or in two days. And I've been having a lot of visa issues. And so at some point, although yesterday I was super stressed out the whole day and like maybe I don't get on the plane and what am I going to do? I'm supposed to be at this training. 
And today I said, you know, the worrying and the anxiety is not helping me be productive right now. And I need to just channel that open space. Whatever happens is the only thing that could have. And whether that means I get my visa and I will be there to do that, deliver that training, or I may not get that visa and I'm going to find another way either to join online or help, you know, help another colleague to come in. And that's, you know, just being a bit more open to that. And I think um, one more thing I'll say here is that there's always this delicate and interesting tension and balance right between Mm. as facilitators we need to design and experience designers we need to design that structure right we cannot be so open like we're so open to open space whatever happens so i'm going to show up here without any design and see what happens like no that also is not going to help us in life (laughs) that sounds terrifying totally terrifying Um, I, I will always, you know, have a structure in place, but it's through the the structure that I can then also say, Hey, where do we need to go off script? Where do we need to totally, you know, take that design and and turn it into something else? Because we need to be open for, we don't know what our participants are walking in with maybe that day, or we don't know what they need, or maybe it goes in a different direction. And we need to also be open to that as well. So it's that balance. Mm. That um, made me think, Romy, about something else that as I was exploring came up for me, and it was this idea of presence. Mm. And I can't recall if the context that I heard this in was that same idea of what strikes people, okay, is the presence. But I have, in reflecting on my own facilitation and my own growth, (laughs) I think that my own internal work, and I mean even like therapy work and just self-awareness, has allowed me to be much more present as a facilitator and with my participants. And I was thinking about how in this moment in time where things are so fast paced, I've always been fast paced, but now it just feels faster and faster and things are changing so quickly. And we have this wealth of information and poverty of attention and there's more courses and all this stuff, right? That people are really hungry for a learning experience in which somebody is present with them, a community is present with them, uh, maybe that they are present within themselves, um, you know, there that there is space for reflection and growth. And so I'm just wondering, that idea of presence is coming up for me, and I'm wondering if you have anything that, that has really stood out to you. So many trails, totally. Uh... Thank you for bringing that up because presence is absolutely another key aspect of experience, right? If we really want to fully tap into those experiences, those senses, those, you know, any of those emotions, we need to be present for them. And I'll give you another example that if I right now go outside of my house and I take a walk in nature and I'm multitasking and texting and calling and maybe I'm not even at all present and aware of the beautiful nature around me, that's going to be a very different experience than if I maybe go without technology or just put on some music and just really take time to be present or really smell the forest, really hear maybe the sounds of the water um, in the river. Like that is a totally different experience because I'm really fully immersed in it, right? And so that for me goes for any aspect in in our life as designers. Mm-hmm. I need to be one, um, really aware of what kind of, experiences I'm creating for the learner so that they can be present, they can immerse in it, that I'm being kind and empathic in the design that I'm building so that it's not so much packed in there and people don't even get time to breathe and reflect and process and wow, they need time to just fully sit with some of those emotions or sit with some of those thoughts and really be present with them. 
And on the flip side, also as the facilitator, I have to show, I have to be fully present, right? And this is something that I feel like I'm constantly learning <laughs> with is I, one thing I love about this work is that I get to work with so many different kinds of clients from, you know, corporations and teams to nonprofits to UN agencies, um, you name it, uh, all over the globe. This is something I love is how diverse and varied my work is. And I have to also sit with the, the opposite side of that of when I do too much and I'm doing too many different things, I can't tap into that full presence. And that is such a key part of being a facilitator. So I'm really learning the for me, the aspect of how, what are, how am I setting myself up for success around my training? So being able to come into a training with maybe having done a bit more mindfulness, I have some like mindful rituals here to like help me get grounded and be fully present with, with my, uh, with my participants in the group. And then the flip side is after a training or after a big event, when I've, you know, it's exhausting being a facilitator. You are putting all of your energy, all of your attention. You're constantly looking at what do people need? How are people feeling? How am I bringing the energy and the passion? And you need time as well to, I need time, but we all need time to decompress from that. And then like, so that, that resting process is also key so that for the next training, I can be fully present as well. This is very much speaking to me. I've been thinking about the same thing recently about what is, to get kind of specific, like what is the ideal client load for a period of time? Because I end up similarly doing a lot of the experience design work. And that takes for me a special type of brain space, a special, a special type of like work block on my calendar to be able to think freely and creatively about concepts, but then to have the client meetings and to have the iterations. And then to, if I am facilitating or if I'm training facilitators, all of those pieces. So that was just really helping me think about, I'm similarly wrestling with some of those concepts and figuring out what looks like margin on my calendar is actually absolutely necessary. And if I start to see there's not enough, I need to block some real work blocks to say, I'm no longer available in this time. If you want me to be the best resource for you, I have to work in this way. Um, Cause I'm always thinking about client work in the back of my mind when I'm running or, you know, Oh, this could work, you know, there. And if you don't have that space, then some of those ideas may not have room to live and breathe there. There was something else that was making me think about Ah, I know what it was. There is a concept that I am diving deeply into that has a proper noun and a research backing, but also I'm exploring with the term and what I think it means to me, but it's learning agility. And I'm really interested in this right now because I'm doing work around modern learning habits and really thinking about how at this moment in time, why we need to be able to really not only know how to learn, but what to learn at this moment in time for us as individuals and maybe as an organization as well. And I'm curious um, because I've heard you talk about being a flexible learner. And so when I just say the word learning agility, what comes up for you? How do you think about it? Um, yeah. What have you seen? There's, I am, I'm so happy we're having these conversations. I, I've gone totally off script, by the way. It's none of the questions that we put in here, and I apologize. Don't ever <laughs> apologize. This is, this is the whole beauty of doing exactly this, of really seeing where this experience takes us. Like, we are practicing experiential learning right now. Like, what are you feeling? What's striking you? Tap into that. No need to apologize. I, I think we should always go off script. There should never be a script in podcasts. This is about, like you said, what are we interested to learn? Um, 
So in experiential learning theory, actually, there is a concept that we call learning flexibility, and it's probably maybe what you're referring to with this learning uh, agility. Um, This is such a key component. And without going deep into the theory about learning styles, I can say is that one thing that we, we know with experiential learning is we all have preferences in that cycle, right? Whether we love to be the one that immerse ourselves in the, in the experience, or we'd like to be the one that's kind of more reflecting and observing what just happened, or maybe going deep into the analytical thinking phase of what was that theory? Like, let's really get into the meat of the knowledge or the one who's like, let's try things out. Let's test things as experiment. We all have preferences. And I think for me, when I think about learning flexibility, it's that we need to be mindful that our preferences are great. Just like any person, we can come with strengths, but we can't just sit there. We can't sit with our strengths. We need to constantly push ourselves outside of our comfort zone um, and really develop what we call learning flexibility to say, okay, even if I'm the person I love those experiences. I love to be, I need to also push myself to get comfortable with that deep analytical thinking processes as well, because to create one full learning cycle or what we call holistic learning, uh, a, a full cycle learning, we need all of those stages of the cycle and developing learning flexibility is saying, Hey, I know I might be really comfortable over here, but I can't stay there. I won't grow as an individual, as a facilitator, designer, you name it in life. How do we push ourselves to really go around the cycle to try things that might feel super out of our comfort zone? Um, because that's how we learn. And I want to get back to another thing you said is that you're so right. We are not trained to learn how we learn. And it's actually a really dirty secret, particularly in higher education, is that a lot of I've done a lot of trainings with educators around the globe because I realized that people are not trained in how we learn and experiential learning is what I love about it. It's not just, you know, to be the most effective. It's, it's actually taps into brain-based science of like how the human brain learns. That's why it comes from naturally. But if you're not aware of that, you're going to constantly start designing first with what topics do they need to learn? Okay. What is the material? What's the content before actually thinking about, wait, how do we really make sure that we're maximizing the potential with the full experiential learning process, but then also helping every individual in that room tap into their own learning flexibility and say, I'm ready to push myself. Everyone's going to have their own threshold, Mm -hmm. but they need to find their own sweet spot and empowering them to do that. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. It makes me think about just unpacking further that I heard two roles in there, right? There's the role of the, we'll just call him the learner. I know, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, the learner that needs information and that bothers me a little bit. But for right now, the learner, the person who's coming there for that, um, can, they can have I just a role. say something? I, like, let's destigmatize yeah. that. Why is that a bad word? Yeah. We should all be learners. Know. We should all be wanting yes. to wear that hat proudly of I'm a lifelong learner. Yes. yes let's do it. <laughs> so in this role, we're thinking about the role of the learner. And, and I hear you speaking to some responsibility, some ownership. Um, I love the word agency here of how do we help empower our learners for them to take that ownership because and them to understand their preferences but not fall only towards those. And so they have some, yeah, I'm going to say need for ownership and responsibility and 
as the person that's designing, facilitating, whatever your role is in, in leading and guiding and supporting, um, there's a role for you too in saying and being aware of the preferences and yet not coddling to one. Because in fact, that does the exact opposite of what we're trying to do, which is to grow and pull forward. And we know that the learning doesn't happen within that comfort zone that you referenced. You know, how do we get to that growth zone? And so... Does that resonate that there's those roles and this idea of ownership and anything more perhaps we can dig into the ownership side of things for learners and how we can set people up for success there? Totally. I think it's it's not spoken about enough and you're so right. It is absolutely essential. Learning is a partnership. Learning is a partnership. I, as a facilitator, even as a trainer, I cannot make anyone learn anything. Actually, Galileo, I think it was, who said something along the lines of, uh, you cannot teach anyone anything. You can only help them discover it within themselves. And I love, love that approach because that's really what it is. I can only create the conditions for learning. I can only be there to make sure I'm emphasizing psychological safety, making sure that people know this is not, I'm not going in and just saying it's a safe space. No, but my actions, the intentional design we've created here, it's helping people feel safe, that they can open up. They can ask those maybe what they think is silly questions. They can speak vulnerably from their own personal experience. That is one of the key essentials. I can also create the conditions of learning in my design and how I build out the program and how I'm making sure that like you said, it is not this very oppressive educational process of, I have information, you are here to learn from me, let me just throw information at you, right? That is not an empowering process at all, and that doesn't feel like a partnership. People, participants need to see that you are valuing, and you recognize, and you acknowledge the experience that they bring into that room, because every single person is not a blank slate that walks in. They have lived life. They have seen things, they've experienced things, they've learned things. And that is what makes things so rich is when you take a moment to say, Hey, I of course can be here because I don't know if you're here to learn from me about emotional intelligence, but you're the expert on your own emotional patterns. You know what you've seen, you've know what you've seen. Like now after, after COVID, we're all talking about like mental health, what we've seen within our families, our friends, what you notice, what's working, what's not working. That's what makes learning come alive is learning through community, learning from and with each other, especially as a facilitator. I think I always am saying I learn, you know, I know that you came here to learn from me, but I learned even more from you, right? That's what a partnership is. And that's how you help people unleash it within themselves um, is really acknowledge them as the people they are, not as these blank slates walking into your training room. That's so powerful. And I just jotted a note as you were speaking to that. One of the things that struck me um, is this idea of, of course, valuing the experiences that our participants have coming in, right? That there's value there. And one thing that it made a connection in my mind is those four stages, Timothy yeah. Clark, the four stages of psychological safety, and it's the arrow. And then the first being um, being included, the second stage being a learner, the third being a contributor, and then finally a challenger. And we'll put the link to this in the show notes. But um, what struck me right then was thinking about, okay, that by 
by you're signaling the value of the participants. You're inviting them in to, to be included, to be a learner, to be contributors. So that's further up on the in these stages that you're saying, if you just say, okay, you're included and you can come sit in the seat, that's one thing. And we expect you to learn, okay, you know, and we give some safe space and we say safe space, but that doesn't, to your point, like actually do anything unless you've designed for it. In fact, it can be a little confusing to people if it's actually not a safe space. We'll yeah. get into that another time. But this idea of further up to be a contributor by saying, I see you, learners, I see you people in the room and I want to bring in your experience. We actually need your experience to be able to co-create something that would have been impossible apart from the people that are in this room. And so that was something that just stood out to me that there's a connection there in psychological safety. And I don't know if that brings up anything for you of this. One is that you're absolutely right that I, I think that these stages of psychological safety is also how you can think about like priorities as well when you design. So like when you want to make sure we're always starting with inclusion, that people, you know, really take that time to know who's in the room, people are feel seen, that they take time to learn. But then as the training goes on, they really start to feel themselves shift from I'm a participant here, but now I'm really contributing. I'm even challenging the, st the status norm maybe could be, but like I'm here to, to share and present. And that's usually why my designs in anything I design, particularly if it's a longer kind of program, it slowly over time builds up more autonomy for those participants. For example, I, I used to do open spaces. That's a great, like, let's bring it back to open space. So, you know, I can do a training for a week on any topic, let's say. And, um, but by the end, I can't, I don't want to leave and say, okay, now you learned everything about, I don't know, facilitation or about psychological safety or who knows. Everyone here might still have something else that they want to experience, they want to learn, they want to share. So I always love to, if I can, if there's time for it, bring in an open space at the, towards the end. Like, what is it that you want to dive deeper into? What is it that you, you all, it could be something you want to lead. You all come in, maybe you're facilitators and it's you have all these amazing topics or designs that you want to share with somebody else. Now you create the schedule and you bring that, or maybe it's not something that you necessarily want to share, but you're saying, this is a question I've been wrestling with. And I'd love to get a group of people here to like, just dive into that and just geek out on whatever that topic is. Cool. Bring it, create it, do it. Like, let's make that. And we all can really feel, wow, this is a, you know, not just saying it's co-created, it's co-created, but that is a tr fully co-created process. And it brings me back to, you know, one is the principle, one of the principles of open space we were referencing, right? Whoever comes are the right people. You need to acknowledge those are the people there. Maybe when you were designing beforehand, I had a totally different target group in mind, or I don't know, my, sometimes this happens, my client is the leader who tells me one thing, but then when I actually meet with the people, it's actually a totally different perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why it's important to like, these are the people here. This is what they want to learn. How can they harness their full selves and bring something else here that we would not, as you said, we would not be able to experience if a different group of people were there. That's why I really don't believe in off the shelf trainings. It's like, first it's like customization, but second is what, even in that customization, every group is going to be different because the people are what really make or break that experience. And there was one more thing I want to share. Oh, you can even go full in on that approach, which is something I did a, a two-year actual certification in um, pedagogy of the oppressed and applying experiential learning and critical pedagogy. And this was 
going on the full other side of the spectrum of let's be really emergent and see what happens. And it was a 10 day training that was really about, it was actually about the seven habits of highly effective NGOs. So we had all these NGO workers there. And I started saying like, who am I to say, what are the top essential skills that you need for your organization? You know that, you know that, you know that. So we, in a 10 day training, we only had the first day planned, which was all about, you know, getting to know each other, setting the learning space, psychological safety. But after that, we said, this is fully 100% co-creative. It is a blank slate. What are you bringing? What do you want to learn? What would you like us to lead? Because we can research and do some things, but what do you want to lead? And each day we were unfolding the program every day to see how this huge group of 25 people from 11 different countries were coming together to say, like, here's what, how we're going to help us all be more effective as NGO leaders. And those kind of experience are just, wow, those light me up to see what, what we create together. Wow. I love that. I had the opportunity to be a part of something that's along the same lines of open space and they call it the ed camp movement, which is similarly, it's an unconference movement for educators. And uh, so similarly in education, there's professional development that's not always aligned to what teachers actually need. And so um, I helped with ed camp Austin and, you know, we made the agenda that day with the people that were there and then had people lead it. So following those same principles and it was some of the most powerful education sessions I've been a part of real teachers leading and getting up and just saying, going up to the main screen and, and then pulling up their Google slides and saying, this is how I did this. And, oh, I had a student that was struggling with this. How did y'all handle that? And just getting right into, to your point, exactly what they need and bringing their expertise and going right into those concepts. And it, it brings me to when you were talking about the Galileo quote of discovering it for themselves. I think this makes a connection for me with um, this empowerment and self-learning ownership. And so I'd love to explore for a moment, what do you think is maybe the future here or maybe best practices or whatever kind of comes to you around this for how we can help empower individual learners and then we know they're in a larger organization. And so sometimes I see a disconnect between the empowerment of individual learners and the connection in the organization to learning paths or learning LMS systems and all of that. I see a big disconnect. There's people working on the organizational learning paths and there's individual people trying to help individuals, but I don't see a lot of connection between the two. Yeah, I mean, so such great points, so many things to dive into. I think on the most general, basic, probably someone's going to roll their eyes when they hear me say this. <laughs> it's like at the end of the day, it's really true that all people want is just to be seen and heard and acknowledged. And I don't think we do enough of that when we're designing any kind of learning experience, whether it's live, whether it's asynchronous, really tapping into like, who are my users? Who are my clients? Who are the people behind the screen or the people in front of me in the room? And how can I help them feel seen and heard and acknowledged and respected? And for me, that comes so much with really doing the due diligence to understand upfront, like who's coming into this? How can I design this for you? As I said, I I, I might have my bread and butter, my tried and true activity and these things, but not even if it was the same program, not one training is going to look identical to another because it really needs to be about 
trying as much as I can. I recognize that sometimes it's not possible when you're working with organizations that have like 5,000 or 30,000 people like I've done. I'm not going to take time to listen to every single one of those 30,000 people. But at least what I can do is do my due diligence to send out surveys, really hear people, ask them questions to really understand their pain points and support them with that, really understand what they're already doing well and acknowledge them for that. Um, do some interviews, really try to understand, again, humanize the people. I think we just need to bring a bit more humanity into the learning space. Who are you? What is it that you would love to see? What is it that you want to get out of this? And then use those insights to also, you know, talk to your mm the organizer, your client who they also have, you know, the organization also has its goals, but it shouldn't be an mm -hmm. either or for I'm always, I'm mm -hmm. always about the and how can we make sure the organization reaches its target goals, but that the people feel like, wow, this is actually really going to be helpful for me. This is going to help me do my job better. This I something I can integrate. I, I can't stress this enough is that I feel like training now can, can almost get a bad rep because it's like yeah. oh I have enough on my plate don't make me go to another training I don't have time for this training should never be an, and learning experiences should never be an add-on or a burden on top of your work it needs to be integrated to really help people see this is something I want to do this is something that's going to help me and this is going to actually help me do my job better or help me be more effective in my workplace that's when we really can combine these aspects together mm -hmm. and I'll just say this last piece is that I just recently had uh, a call reconnecting with a past client who she was a participant actually in one of my trainings over three years ago. And it was so heartwarming actually to hear her. We, ha we hadn't connected in a while and she, we, we just had a, a, re a catch up call and it was so heartwarming for her to tell me, you know, Romy, I don't think you'll ever understand what you did for that group is that you helped all of us, even as educators, as social workers, we're doing such important work, child, you know, working with childcare, you helped us rediscover our own love of learning. And that's what I think it's about. It's about how do you help people see learning as a gift, as something you love, you can fall into because we, it's, you know, I see too often like the formal education system can often beat out that love of learning, but also in the training space can beat out that love of learning because it's, oh God, this is a mandatory training. It's so boring. It's so this. How do we all support everyone to really just fall in love with learning again? Because as human beings, it's actually an essential need. We need to keep learning and we need to keep growing. That's just part of our, you know, our makeup and our biology. It's a, it's a need we have. Oh, I love it. There's so many things there. <laughs> um, I wish we could talk for days. Um, one that was standing out to me in that was this how when we do all that you just said, when we when we really do tap into and build that love of learning, we also naturally hit how the brain works and we naturally hit motivation. Like all of that motivation theory comes into play when we start with what people actually need to and want to learn versus what can happen a lot of times of what 
top down, we must learn this. And, and I hear you too, the, the both and, and that's often the role I end up playing too, of therapists between the <laughs> client and the organization and all those parts, why it's so important, I think, for anybody that's in the role of, of being a part of the design team to be really clear on the evidence for the need for the training of, A, do we really need a training? Like, what is the thing that isn't happening that we need to be happening? And I always kind of joke, maybe it could be a checklist. Maybe it doesn't have to be, or maybe there's a deeper cultural need that's happening here that we could address. And so I think we just can really support the way that our psychology is designed by starting with interest and, and need and going from there. And it also made me think about when you were talking about some of the amazing opportunities and clients that you've worked with, something that stands out to me in your career history is dealing with very, I mean, many topics are important, but you're dealing with life-changing topics, life-saving information, United Nations work. When you are working on topics that are sensitive, are um, have cultural nuance, have trauma associated with them, all these things, is there something if only people knew when dealing with maybe a delicate topic or a really powerful, deep, important you know, is there something different that you approach in the design when you're starting off with that? Does that bring up anything for you? I think for me, it's more like if I only knew, right? If I only knew when I was way back at the beginning of my own facilitation journey. And, you know, I think, and I'm so grateful that I discovered this early on, but I still wish more people knew was that even when, or especially when, you know, a topic is very heavy, very serious, very important, whether, you know, I've worked, I started my own training career training about human trafficking prevention. Um, I've worked with clients like the World Food Program training in emergency and disaster response. So the full spectrum and everything in between, child marriage, you name it, um, in, in India. So I think what we need to do is separate those ideas that, okay, this is a very serious topic, therefore it needs to be a very serious training. And for me, it's that, I'm not saying we need to joke and make light of, you know, that's also not, not what it's about, but it's about how do we tap into engagement? And engagement happens through a variety of different modalities, through taking different approaches, through being innovative uh, and being open but that also comes with sensitivity and understanding that every single person, I think we're seeing more and more of this topic, like you said, of trauma. Every, everyone has their own traumas and some have extreme traumas. And we need to be open to the fact that anything could trigger somebody. And instead of maybe getting defensive or instead of like maybe writing people off if they react differently is really trying to tap into deep empathy and understanding that you, you don't know what somebody's been through. And my whole outlook on life, I think, has shifted so much in taking that approach of, uh, even today I was having a conversation with a colleague and we were saying, okay, well, this facilitator, you know, he like just really just loves to talk about himself and God, he like dominates the mic and it's all about all his achievements and what he's done and all these things. And, and then, you know, Maybe in the past, early me would have said like, oh God, like what is, you know, someone with such an ego, but now I'm really looking below the surface and trying to see what could have happened. That could be actually a result out of a need of deep insecurity or deep trauma in life where somebody didn't feel acknowledged, didn't feel seen. 
And that's why it becomes a response or a mechanism that I need to kind of like show myself because in my life, maybe I was totally swept under the rug myself. And I think just to bring us full circle, I I feel like you you had, had mentioned earlier about this, love your design, but love your participants more. And I think that's really what it comes down to is about seeing people being sensitive to however people want to, however people receive it, however that experience strikes them it's going to be different. And we also need to be open and understanding and caring and psychological safety is so much about that, but it's also about the accountability as well. Right. So like if, you know, if things happen, I need to take accountability for myself. I need to admit like, Hey, that maybe wasn't super sensitive or I I apologize or be hold other people accountable. Like, no, these are not what you just said. It can be actually super offensive to somebody else. And like, let's be mindful of that. Um, so it's always that, again, we keep talking about the duality, the tension, right? Creating that safe space. That doesn't mean just like anything goes. We also have to balance it with that accountability. Romy, you've taken us full circle <laughs> and thank you so much for doing that. I'd love to do any book recommendations, any course recommendations. Please tell us about the places where people can reach out to you and anything you've got going on. Yes. Okay. So clearly because it's been woven through all of our beautiful discussions today and god thank you for these beautiful chats i know we could have talked for a whole week on so much more it's it's so beautiful having these real you know understanding so thank you for for this tracy um so clearly my areas that i really focus in are in experiential learning and psychological safety and so i would suggest that anyone interested in that work i highly recommend for experiential learning Um, David Kolb has amazing books out there, either The Experiential Educator, warning, it's a big one, it's super big, if that feels too overwhelming. One of the books I constantly go back to and I think is so beautiful that this podcast itself has exemplified is that how we learn is how we live. And that's the name of the book. It's by David Kolb and Kay Peterson from the Institute for Experiential Learning. So how we learn is how we live. Highly recommend that book. If you want to dive more into psychological safety, Amy Edmondson's work, absolutely. The Fearless Organization, it's incredible. Also teaming, a huge fan of David Coyle's book about um, highly effective groups. I'm constantly sharing more about these topics on LinkedIn. So anyone who wants to just like geek out with me on LinkedIn, I love hearing what people are interested in or people posing their questions that we can, you know, respond I really believe information should be free. More people should know and have access to some of this deep insights. But also if you want to join courses, those are experiences we can pay for, uh, you can join. I have a course with the Institute for Experiential Learning called Facilitating Experiential Learning Online, really bridging that gap between the theory about experiential learning and how we put that into practice. I also am working with a few different fabulous facilitation agencies. So one is the Scaling Intimacy School of Experience Design. So actually next week I'm kicking off Facilitation Finesse, but uh, this is a recurring program. So it's a fabulous if you want to harness your own facilitation skills. Can't recommend that enough. And I'm also a mischief maker. So if you're interested uh, in the leading groups course to really walk you through as well. So so many different places to connect, to learn, to grow, and bring really the essence of learning experience design, experiential learning, and facilitation to life. 
Wow. Romy, you just gave us a master class on all those things. And it was so fun to dive in. I'm trying to find one of the notes that I wrote here, but I'll just say it from my mind because I like to, as we close, just say some things that I see in the people that I connect with. So I just see, and I'm so grateful in you. I see this beautiful depth, of course, and expertise that goes so beautifully along with creativity and exploration and openness. And sometimes I don't think those are in the same person. So there's something about that, that there's a beautiful duality of your depth and experience and ability to be lighthearted and full of joy and openness. And so I thank you so much for every interaction that we've had is so open and genuine and um, just generous with your knowledge and sharing that. So thank you so mm -hmm. much. And I look forward to staying connected and reading the amazing things that you're doing and um, just being a virtual friend. Yes. Thank you, Tracy. That was so beautiful. Am I allowed to reflect back to you? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. I want to just thank you. That was so beautiful. I love the reflecting moment. I want to say I really, what I've seen, not just in today, but also in many interactions is I see just such passion for this work. Like I really see you as a lifelong learner. I can see how you um, not only are so like passionate about this work, but also how much you really take time to really dive in. And I feel grateful when you said like, oh, I've been diving into your world and hearing this and that. And I think that really shows you also your, your strong work ethic and um, commitment to results. So it's also, like you said, this beautiful duality of like passion and emotions, but then also the like, you know, put the Put, put your money where your mouth is or put your feet on the ground kind of thing and like make sure it comes to life and so thank you for making this podcast come to life what a gift to get to uh, talk with you and I know I have a feeling this is just the beginning of many more conversations together oh similarly thank you that was so meaningful to hear back all right I'm gonna put all of those details in the episode description and all the links to all the things thank you again Romy thanks so much for listening to the building thinkers podcast don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a podcast rating and review. That helps more listeners find us in the world of podcasting algorithms. You can find out more about my learning and development strategy services at buildingthinkers.com. And remember, there's no limit to what you can learn.